if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to 2 Peter. Yes, I said 2 Peter. We've been in a study of 1 Peter, and we will again today, but I want to start us off with just some quick words at the end of 2 Peter. Of course, written by the same Peter as the one who writes 1 Peter. And if there ever were a case of the pot calling the kettle black in the Bible, it may be Peter here in 2 Peter 3. In 2 Peter 3, Peter refers to Paul's writings. He calls them scripture. He says that they're wise and, of course, helpful. So in that, he affirms his fellow apostle Paul. But he says that Paul is sometimes hard to understand. In 2 Peter 3, verse 15, he says, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom, wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them in these matters. There are some things in them, in these letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Again, Peter affirms that Paul's writings are scripture, they're wise, they're helpful, and some things in Paul's letters... Romans and following. He says some things are hard to understand. Now, indeed that's true. There are some things in Paul that are hard to understand. We could look at some of those. We could talk about those. We could study those. We sometimes do when we're going through one of Paul's letters. But it's ironic to hear it from Peter, knowing that he writes what he does in 1 Peter 3. Turn to 1 Peter 3. Our passage for this morning is 1 Peter 3, 18, and specifically in verses 19 and 20, we're going to see, well, Peter's own hard-to-understand words. In verse 18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then here comes the head-scratcher. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The reformer Martin Luther said of this passage, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand and cannot explain it, and there's been no one who has explained it. And with that last line, he doesn't mean no one has tried to explain it. There have been plenty who have. But he meant no one, to his satisfaction, had yet convincingly explained it. I agree with Martin Luther that this is one of, if not the most difficult passages in the New Testament for us to interpret. Many passages in the Bible have one or two or three things that are head-scratchers, and hence scholars and pastors debate and, and offer various interpretations of them. This passage has more than the average head-scratcherness, you could say. And each thing that's debated then has multiple options for possible interpretations. One scholar has calculated that because of the significant number of debated issues in this passage, and because of the unusually high number of proposed or possible interpretations of those debated issues, in theory there are 180 possible combinations of interpretations. Be of good cheer, we won't go through those today. <laughs> I do think Luther was right that this is a difficult passage, but I don't think he was right to scratch his head, bemoan the lack of clarity in Peter's words here, and then move along. 
But frankly, that's what many preachers do with a passage like this, and this one specifically. I listened to several well-known preachers on this passage this week just wanting to see what they did, not so much trying to learn from them about what it says, but books usually do that better than sermons do. And, but, but I wanted to see what they did, and some skipped it and went on to chapter 4. Some took five minutes to explain the main different views, but then moved on down the road and And some didn't bother with the meaning of all the tough parts and just said, here's what it should mean for our living. Here's how we apply it, and here are some implications. We'll shoot for something else this morning. In some ways, this morning's sermon will be a lesson in how to wrestle with a tough passage, how to play detective with our Bibles. What I hope to show you, though, is, yes, what the passage is saying but also why it's here and why it helps and why and how it gives encouragement even though at first it just seems peculiar, if not obscure. We want to acknowledge that it's a head-scratcher. We want to scratch that itch, but we also want to come to a resolution, not just for curiosity's sake. We want help. We want encouragement. We want strengthening. We want to be nourished by the sincere milk of the word, like Peter has already told us in this letter. Let me start off by mentioning some things about the nature of the Bible that we should have in mind when we come to a tough passage. First, the Bible is God's word, and specifically, it's God's word's We're told in 2 Peter 1 that when prophets of old wrote down or spoke what they did, these were men speaking from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Yes, they spoke, but the Spirit was giving them the the words to say. And I think Peter would apply that also to the New Testament writers who, like he said of Paul's writings, are Scripture. We see in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God, though it's his very words. The Bible is God's words, hence the Bible is true, hence the Bible is perfect. It's what we need even when we don't think we need it. We also need to believe what the Bible teaches us about the Bible, that the Bible is clear. It's called the doctrine of perspicuity. The Bible is clear. Psalm 19 tells us it's pure. That means clear in that context. And that doesn't mean that there aren't difficult things in Scripture, difficult to interpret, to apply, to live by, to believe. What it means is that in the Bible, the plain things are the main things. And the main things are the plain things. Just tuck that away. The things that are difficult to understand usually don't have the kernel and and whole husk of the main things of what we need to believe to be saved. The plain things are the main things. The main things are the plain things. And we go to those main and plain things to see what we should think about in those more difficult areas where God's word is deep. Yes, God's word is deep. And that shouldn't be surprising to us. It's from God. John Calvin said this book is really God's baby talk. He is so infinitely wise, beyond our comprehension, beyond our ways, that he condescends like a, a mom doing goo-goo talk with, their, with her baby. He condescends to us to, to give us words that, that put limits on who he is in a sense because, well, words can't contain the whole, can't contain the infinite. And yet what he has written at times is very deep, even though limited by language. Which means that, yes, God's word at times isn't easy. So what do we do when a passage is hard to understand? What principles can we carry into our investigation of these verses here, these head-scratching verses of 1 Peter 3? Well, we look at language. We look at words, because God gave words. And so we look at the words, and we try to look for the meaning, and try to look for the order of things. We look for verbal cues. We also look at the flow. We look at the context of the surrounding verses. We'll do that this morning. We come back to the big picture of the letter, or the book which we're in, and see if that note we've been striking over and over again is relevant here and influences the interpretation again. 
We also rule out any interpretations of a difficult passage that would be unique to that passage. God hasn't buried a a doctrine in a single obscure verse of the Bible. So we can go into 1 Peter 3 with that. If the Bible doesn't say something elsewhere, then it doesn't say it here. We consider also the author's other writings, like 2 Peter. We'll do that today, just a bit. And we'll consider other passages elsewhere in the Bible that are on a similar theme. And then you piece all that together, and you see which interpretation is best. Not perfect, but best. Because oftentimes, as this passage is very clearly an example of, uh, a lot of times there's a, a, an interpretation which is the best one, and yet it still leaves some questions in your mind. That's okay. That's part of wrestling with the words from an eternal God over millennia in different authors of different times. The more difficult the passage is, the more there is disagreement among good scholars, then the more humble we should be in whatever conclusion we come to, and the more flexible we should be with those who might disagree. So I'll propose a interpretation of this passage this morning you can feel free to disagree with me and we can still go about our merry way and you you can see why some preachers then skip the the interpretation and just get to the merry way part but we won't again do that today before we get to this real head scratching stuff in verse 19 and 20 we have to see that first verse we read this morning we have to remember why it's there verse 18 is the first thing in your notes encouragement in the cross and resurrection. And Peter's writing in this section, as he is in his whole letter, about encouragement for suffering Christians, persecuted Christians, those surprised by suffering and persecution. Remember, he was writing to explain to them what the true grace of God is and to exhort them to stand firm in it. He's trying to encourage them in their suffering, and that's why verse 18 is here. It's not just this floating gospel explanation, good as it is. Probably every one of us, not probably, every one of us should have verse 18 memorized so we can just spit out a gospel nugget when someone asks us for the hope that's within us. It's a great gospel nugget. But it's here in a context for not just witnessing purposes, but for encouraging purposes. We should be encouraged with Christ's suffering for us, for our sins, that the righteous one went in place of the unrighteous ones, that he died the death that we deserve so that we could live a life that we didn't earn and could never earn. He died once. We find encouragement in the righteous, substitutionary suffering of Christ for our behalf. We find encouragement in his example, too. We talked about this just a bit last week. The righteous one suffered. He suffered. He was infinitely more righteous than any of us. Any of us ever. Infinitely more righteous, and yet he suffered more than any of us ever. Not just in the physical punishment and pain of the cross, but in the spiritual abandonment that was going on when he was bearing sins and the father turned away. We find encouragement in our suffering by looking to Christ's righteous suffering as an example. We also rejoice and find encouragement in the fact that the cross means we've been brought near to God. The Lord's presence is with us now. Christ is with us. We'll see that again later on in the sermon. And we're encouraged by the vindication of Christ That's in his resurrection. That's that last phrase of 1 Peter 3.18. It says, He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Clearly this is talking about death and resurrection. But death and resurrection for this encouragement of Christ's vindication. That's been Peter's main point. Remember way back in chapter 1, verse 11, he said, The prophets from of old knew these two themes and weren't sure how they went together. Sufferings first, glories to follow. 
that would actually make a, a good title for a, a sermon series in 1 Peter, a good, a, a good way of titling 1 Peter as a book. Suffering first, glories to follow. That was Christ's biography when he was here on earth, and, and it'll be ours. Suffering first, glories to follow. But back in chapter 3, verse 18, the last line there, why does Peter word it like he does? He says, death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, this is important. This will be a launching pad into these head-scratching verses that we've already talked about or hinted at and read this morning. When we study those, this will become relevant. Death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, is harder to understand than it first seems. It's clearly talking about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. He was put to death, made alive. But why is it that he was made alive in the flesh? But, I'm sorry, in the spirit as opposed to flesh. It makes sense for us to to believe and to read that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. But why does it not say that he was made alive in the flesh? We believe in a bodily resurrection, don't we? Not just a spiritual one. Well, what Peter's doing here is he's contrasting these two things, and he's contrasting them as realms. They're contrasted realms. Jesus was put to death in the realm of the flesh, but he was made alive in the realm of the spirit. You see, he was put to death by physical means, right? You could see it. But he was made alive, though he was made alive physically, he was made alive by something that was unseen, something behind the scenes, a spiritual realm, the spirit itself. We're told in Romans 8 and other verses in the Bible that the spirit of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, was instrumentally involved in Jesus' bodily resurrection. It it wasn't... um, Those cardiac pads they put on and shock someone back to life. It wasn't something external that brought Jesus back to life. It was something spiritual and unseen. Jesus was raised to life in the spiritual realm. So we'll see in just a few minutes that that's important for our understanding for this head-scratching thing. Now let's get to it. It's the second point in your notes. Encouragement from the days of Noah. These two verses, 19 and 20, clearly are talking about something, about Noah and Jesus preaching to spirits that are in prison. This point will occupy the majority of our time this morning. Let's read these verses again. They say, In which Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Let's ask and try to answer several questions as we investigate what these two verses mean. The first question we should ask is, how have these been interpreted before? How have others interpreted these verses? I I won't give you the, the list of 180 But let me just mention a few, and I'll go from bad to better to best. One interpretation of these verses is that Jesus, after he died, before he was raised, in that gospel weekend, he went to hell and he preached to those there, preaching them a second offer, a second chance to believe the gospel and be saved. But... Why does 1 Peter 3 specify that it was for those in the days of Noah? Only those who lived in the days of Noah got this second chance? And if you say, no, it wasn't just those in the days of Noah. They just represented all unbelievers who are in hell. But then why does it say in the days of Noah? Why doesn't it say he went to hell and he preached and gave an open invitation? Even more importantly, against this interpretation would be that there's this There's no second chance for salvation spoken of anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, as we'll see in just a minute from Peter's next letter, 2 Peter, he makes it unavoidably clear there's no second chance after we die. 
Another interpretation, though, says that Jesus descended to the place of the dead people, and there he led Old Testament saints from Hades to paradise. This one's usually tied up with a a Catholic view. This is the Catholic interpretation of this passage. And we'd have to say in response, but but what does that have to do with Noah and his time? Why Noah specifically and not all Old Testament saints? And why does it say in 1 Peter 3 that it's those who formerly did not obey? If these are Old Testament saints, is that really the best description? They formerly did not obey? No. A more common interpretation is this, that after Jesus' resurrection, he went to hell to proclaim victory over fallen angels, and specifically, these people called sons of God in Genesis 6, who you may have heard, they were the ones who took on wives, and then they gave birth to Nephilim, giants in the land. So some say these are demons, and some say that Jesus went and preached victory to them. And it's certainly true that Christ's death and resurrection was some sort of in-your-face announcement to the spiritual world. So Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities in the cross and resurrection. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And we'd say about this interpretation, though, why, why is it so specific in 1 Peter 3. Why is Jesus proclaiming victory only to certain demons who may or may not have been involved in whatever happened in Genesis 6? That's up for debate. That's debated, but without getting into specifics of those issues, those are kinds of questions that this view has to wrestle with. But there's another view, and that's the one I want to unpack for you today. I think it's the right one. We'll do that as we ask more questions Another question is, who are these spirits in prison? In short, what I think is, they are men and women who are now imprisoned in hell, who were alive and unrepentant in the days of Noah. Paul writes of this generation and its judgment in 2 Peter. Would you go back to 2 Peter? 2 Peter 2, here we get a paragraph about God's judgment. God's judgment first on false teachers in Peter's day, and then how that judgment is is typical. Fallen angels and and those who lived in the time of Noah. So in 2 Peter 2, verse 3, Peter writes of false teachers, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, even though they're living and walking around. Their destruction is not asleep. For if God didn't spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, and if he didn't spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, and he condemned them to extinction, making them an example... Verse 7, and if he rescued righteous Lot, then skip ahead to verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So there's how we know there's no second chance. Those who've passed on without faith, without repentance, are kept under punishment until a day of judgment. Now go back to 1 Peter 3. You might be asking, I said, spirits are now in prison, but they were those who were alive and unrepentant in the days of Noah. You might be thinking, Ryan, it says spirits in prison. Wouldn't it be misleading if it were referring to a time when they weren't imprisoned in hell? Not necessarily. Wayne Grudem has written more on this passage, well, at least written as well on this passage as anyone else, in my opinion. He points out that it isn't wrong or inappropriate to say, Queen Elizabeth was born in 1927. She wasn't queen in 1927. 
But you can say, Queen Elizabeth was born in 1927. She later became queen. Peter's doing something like that here. Those spirits in prison? Now. And then he goes on to describe people who are in the days of Noah. Grudem points out there are many more clear time markers in this passage than just just the spirits who are in prison. Notice, here's our third question. When did Christ preach to them? Well, it says, spirits now in prison. Look down in your Bibles. Concentrate at God's words for us this morning. Spirits now in prison. And then he goes on to talk about those because they formally did not obey. Formally points us backwards. In the Greek, there's even a when here. Because when they formerly did not obey. Also, what's the next time marker? A time when God's patience waited. You see? Or the next one. It was in the days of Noah, the clearest one. It was while the ark was being built. You've got four or five time markers going on here that are all focused on the the days of Noah. When the ark was being built. When God's patience waited. When those back then formerly did not obey. What was then though? Well, Christ preached then. Christ preached. That's the main verb. Christ went and proclaimed. How did Christ preach to them? Right? You're talking, Ryan, Genesis 6. I'm no scholar, but Genesis 6 seems a whole lot before Mary in Bethlehem, in the birth. Jesus preaching after that, I get it. Jesus preaching before that, how did Jesus preach to them? Well, remember that key in verse 18, that last line. He was made alive in the spirit. He was made alive in the realm of the spirit, in the spiritual realm, in which he went and proclaimed. He went and proclaimed behind the scenes. He went and proclaimed in and through an unseen realm as he preached through, guess who? Guess who? Go ahead. Noah. Yeah, that's right. The guy in the passage who's getting a lot of attention. Noah. You say he preached through Noah? Is that right? Does he do that? Well, what do you think? You think Jesus was... Just sitting around twiddling his thumbs waiting for the New Testament to start? No, we see all kinds of activity of the second person, the Son of God, doing things in the Old Testament. Here we find something else. We saw it back in 1 Peter chapter 1. Remember the prophets? They prophesied about the grace that was to come. They were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings and glories to come. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that we're all Christians, ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal to the world through us. God is making his appeal through us. As we preach, there's a sense in which behind the scenes Jesus is preaching Do not fear what you will say when they put you on the stand and they say all kinds of bad things about you. Do not fear what you will say. In that moment, you will be given the words to say. And didn't we just read in 2 Peter 2, verse 5, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. The same word. Noah is a preacher. And in Genesis 6, apparently, that time, he was preaching. And behind the scenes, it was Christ who was preaching. Now, Genesis 6 doesn't tell us that Noah was preaching while he built the ark, but, but Jewish tradition believed that Noah was preaching while he was building the ark. I mean, even you know the Steve Carell movie has preaching tied up with building the ark as well. That's not why we believe it, though. We believe it because Peter calls Noah a herald, a preacher. Hebrews 11 also says that Noah condemned the world. That sounds bad, like he was judgmental or mean, but instead it means that through Noah, God's condemnation of the world was being announced and demonstrated. Christ preached through Noah. What did he preach? What did Jesus preach to them? Well, he preached righteousness and justice. Noah, with Jesus behind him, 
clearly preached repentance and no doubt preached of God's mercy, no doubt preached of God's long-suffering patience. God himself said before he told Noah to build the ark that he's patient, but he will not always strive or or wait or, or put up with rebellion. Eventually judgment would come, so Noah, get to work. Get that gopher wood out and start nailing and cutting. And what was the response to those that Noah preached to? Well, verse 20 tells us of 1 Peter 3. Remember, these are those who formerly did not obey when God was waiting. In fact, at the end, it was only a few. That is, eight persons in total. Noah, his sons, their wives, Noah's wife. Eight persons were brought safely through water. The rest, they ignored. They dismissed. They didn't care. They mocked. And they perished. They perished. Could you imagine? If you think about Noah's flood, I'm sure most of us think of being in the boat looking around and seeing nothing but water, maybe being scared just because waves are big and it's pretty scary. You're, you're on a boat with a bunch of animals. That's pretty scary. You know, you can't see land. That's frightening. Imagine being outside the boat. Imagine being in the boat or on the deck and looking out and seeing a sea of bodies. Whew. They waited, and then God came. We'll come back to that at the end of this message. One more question. How is this supposed to be encouraging, Ryan? How is any of this encouraging, let alone, you know, the whole judgment thing, all these intricacies of interpretation? Well, did you notice the many parallels between the Noah story and what you know about 1 Peter, the reasons for him writing, the whole context, what we've been seeing in recent weeks. You see, Peter wants his readers, and he wants us by extension, to move from suffering to head-scratching to encouragement and strength and endurance. You see, Noah was righteous, despite an unrighteous surrounding. And Peter has been striking that note all through this letter, and he'll continue to do so. Noah's like us in that call. Noah was also a bold witness of God's righteousness in the coming judgment. And like Noah, we're to do the same. We're to preach and to warn. We're to represent God to the world. Isn't that what we saw last week? 1 Peter 3.15, we honor Christ the Lord as holy and we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that's within us, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Noah is an example of bold preaching about the righteousness and judgment of God and yet the sweet mercy and patience of him. If Jesus was behind the scenes preaching through Noah, before the flood, and we shouldn't be surprised to think that the Lord is doing the same today as we boldly represent him to the world. Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, he's making his appeal through us. That still happens today. We're his voices, we're his heralds, we're his ambassadors. Jesus preaching through you. Like Noah and his family, While we preach and while they ignore and get mad, we may indeed be a minority. With Noah, they were few in number. Only eight with a whole metropolis around them. Like Noah, we may well be maligned, mocked, or simply dismissed and ignored. Look back to Noah and find encouragement there. Like Noah, we're to be patient and we're to be awaiting people. We're to be a trusting people. We're to trust him at his word. No rain, no water, build an ark. And that's going to take a really, really long time. I can't build anything without it taking ten times longer than I thought it was going to be. 
Imagine building an ark. And yet he trusts the Lord and trusts the Lord's timing. He trusts the Lord's justice. So we too should have a confident trust in Jesus bringing our salvation finally to its completion. Him bringing vindication finally to his people. Jesus was vindicated in the resurrection. Noah was vindicated in the ark. One day we too will be vindicated with our Jesus when he comes again. So there's much encouragement here for us as Christians in this peculiar, head-scratching little analogy of Jesus going and preaching to those in the days of Noah. They're now in prison, but back then they weren't. They were those who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited while the ark was being prepared and God was saving Noah. Now, more quickly, two more points for us to consider. A third is encouragement in the picture of baptism. Encouragement in the picture of baptism. Verse 21 is also a head-scratcher, but, but not nearly as complicated as the two verses we saw before. He says in verse 21, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's confusing, head-scratching about this verse is that it says, essentially, baptism now saves you. And that seems to say something that we don't believe here. It sounds like baptism saves you, or like it's part of what saves you, or it's part of what... Part of the means that God uses to save you, or it's a necessary qualification to be saved. Like, believe and be baptized, and then you'll be saved. Not believe and be saved, then be baptized. Now, some religions do believe that baptism saves you, or is part of what we need to be saved. But we don't believe that. And one big reason we don't believe that is because that teaching would run contrary to to almost Every other passage in the Bible about salvation and grace and the gospel and what Jesus did and how we receive it. I could just go through a list right now off the top of my head and, 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 and we would know if you knew those chapters that, yeah, there you can't see anything of a message of hope that is believe and be baptized, therefore get saved. Another reason why we know this, this phrase, baptism now saves you, doesn't mean what it seems to say is because it's, it's not a floating phrase. It's not the self-contained religious saying. Notice it says baptism, which corresponds to this. What's the this? To what? To, to water. Back in verse 20, right? They were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Baptism is also water. It corresponds to this in a way that there's similar salvation. You see, for Noah, water was that message. Water is coming. Water was the message for which he was mocked by the world all around him. But it was also the means by which the ark was carried along. Eventually, they were carried to safety. You see, the water was... What killed the world around Noah. But for Noah and his family, the water is what saved them. Corresponding to this, connected to this, related to this, water baptism now rescues you. It's rescuing, saving, delivering. He says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Not by cleansing you doesn't save in that way. Water in baptism doesn't do anything. It's not magical water. It's just plain old Albuquerque tap water. It doesn't wash away sin or guilt. It doesn't make us feel better necessarily. No, but it represents this. An appeal to God for a good conscience. You see, baptism represents faith. And faith is calling out to God for a cleansing, a cleansing of our guilt and a cleansing of our conscience. So we were saved, not because we were baptized, but by grace and through faith in prayer to God, 
appealing to him for a cleansed conscience, we manifested that in baptism. Baptism is the faith of a Christian, the saving faith, portrayed. It's in action. It's a representation of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It pictures going down into the water, coming up out of it, like burial and resurrection, because Jesus' burial and resurrection is of first importance, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It's utmost. It's everything. It's paramount. It also signals our own death-to-life experience. So Peter looks to encourage suffering, persecuted Christians with their baptism. Remember, you were baptized. And that didn't save you. You were already saved. It pictured your cleansing. It pictured your identifying with Christ. You've already done what's equivalent to the birth announcement. We Christians have been born again, born from above. And baptism is like the birth announcement to the world. And hence, it's also something that can get people in trouble. Baptism can be something that um, puts us on the outside, on the outside of what we used to believe, on the outside of what our parents do believe or what friends around us believe. And hence, it, it possibly puts us outside of certain relationships. And in other parts of this world, not so much here, but in other parts of this world, Certainly in other centuries gone by, baptism has always been a dangerous thing. It's dangerous business to identify with Christ like this. It's one thing to say, I'm exploring Christianity when you're a Muslim. Or being a Hindu and saying, I'm interested in the teachings of Jesus. Mom and dad are fine with that. Hindu mom and dad are fine with that. But you say, I got baptized. And there's a fork in the road. There's a parting of the ways. And now you have turned against them and their ways as you've turned to Christ. You see, like Noah building his ark, our baptism signals to the world we're no longer our own. We've been bought with a price. We're his. Body and soul, even when faced with the sword. I wonder, have you made an appeal to God for a clean conscience? That's a funny way of putting it. All, all it really means is, have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and gotten forgiveness of sins and reconciliation? Do you believe that the righteous died in the place of the unrighteous you? That you might be brought to God? Have you received that? Have you made an appeal to God for a clear conscience? Romans 10 says, call on him. Call on him. You will be saved. We pray that you would know that. We pray you'd let us help you if you're not a Christian with seeking and thinking about making an appeal to God for a clean conscience and then coming to believe and be baptized. So I have to ask also, have you gladly embraced Jesus' command to be baptized by, by publicly portraying your cleansing in those waters? Are you a Christian that hasn't been baptized? It's not just a missed opportunity. It's disobedience to the Lord. Christian, if you're one whose heart is made new, you have reason to believe that's true, then, yes, on the basis of your appeal to God for a clean conscience, demonstrate that cleansing and identifying with Christ's body and his death, his resurrection, in the waters of baptism. Our youth are talking about this today when they meet in the next hour. You can pray for that. You can also seek baptism next round as we do this. Uh, later this summer, there'll be a three-week class on Sunday mornings on baptism. And you can contact Pastor Ron at any time, including now. I'd encourage you to begin that process of pursuing baptism here and before these brothers and sisters. Okay, one more thing for us to consider as we wrap this up. One more verse for us to see in chapter 3. It's really 
what we might call reckoning with Christ's exaltation. Reckoning with Christ's exaltation. Verse 21 ended with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then it says, verse 22, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You see, in his resurrection, he has signaled his victory over sin and and Satan and over all. Where does that put you? Where do you stand with the Lord Jesus who's over demons and Satan and all authority and all of hell and all rebellion? Make no mistake, the resurrection signals this whether you believe it or not. Hebrews 2, it says that God has put everything in subjection to Christ, leaving nothing outside of his control, and then it acknowledges, at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. You can say, I don't feel like I'm in subjection to him. Of course not. Neither did we Christians before our eyes were opened. We thought we were free. We didn't realize that he's the Lord and there's none besides him, whether we acknowledge it or not. One day, those things that are in subjection to him will be fully seen. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Jesus will come again. I know, we Christians, we believe some crazy stuff. We believe that God wrote the Bible and that these hard words are fun and good for us. And we believe Jesus came. He's God and he's man and he died. He died a cruel death. He was perfectly righteous. We believe he rose from the dead. And on top of that, here's this cherry. We believe he's coming back again. We believe there is going to be an apocalypse. We believe he will destroy this world. We believe that he's waiting now patiently, mercifully. He waits not because he's unaware not because he's tuned out or because he isn't there. He waits in love and long-suffering patience for you. That day when he comes again will be just like it was in the days of Noah. Jesus said so. In Matthew 24, he said, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man For as in those days before the flood, these people, these people formerly of disobedience, remember them? They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. It doesn't say they were pulling out Ouija boards and sacrificing babies and, you know, beating up nuns or whatever else you can think of. It's just the worst of the worst. It says they were eating and drinking, marrying giving in marriage. Noah, the righteous preacher, was no doubt preaching that the Lord is going to come in judgment. And they were eating and drinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy Noah. Whatever. Keep going with that stupid ark. We got a meal to prepare. We got a a party to celebrate. We got a, we got a, a daughter to marry off. We've got a honeymoon to, to celebrate. We've got a, we got a girl that we've got to pursue. Later, later, later. But then Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and swept them all away. And so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He will come again. He waits in patience. The Lord is not slow, Peter says at the end of his second letter. The Lord is not slow about fulfilling his promise, but he's patient in not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In the next verse he says, but the day will come when his patience gives way to his justice and his holy righteousness. And the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. What horrifying 
What a horrifying day that will be. And yet for the Christian, it is purely good news. So Peter says next, since all these things are going to be dissolved, Christians, what sort of people ought you to be in in lives of holiness and godliness now? Waiting for and hastening, hurrying up the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's our hope. And just as God promised Noah the flood would come, and it did, the Lord will come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those who've gone before us in teaching your word and writing big books about it. Thank you for their careful thought. We thank you most importantly for your spirit at work in them and in us for us to understand, for us to get understanding and be helped, not just in what your word says, but how it applies, what it teaches us, how it redirects us. Lord, we pray that we would be reproved by your word, rebuked by your word where needed. We pray we would be exhorted and encouraged where needed. May it be that we'd be strengthened by your word to to be bold, to be patient, to be waiting, to be watchful, to be righteous, to not be discouraged when, when we look small, when we look on the outside, when we seem foolish or insignificant or or easily disregarded by the world around us. But we pray, Lord, that your grace would spread in and through us. We pray that it wouldn't be eight that are saved or a few in number, but we pray you would bring in great multitudes from the nations for your namesake. We pray, Lord, that the harvest, which is white, Lord, would have laborers that reap great, great fruit. Help us, Lord, to apply the simple truth, but the manifest, complex, overwhelmingly real and pervasive truth that Christ is all. He's everything. He's the one for whom there is preeminence, and in him everything holds together. In him is our only saving hope. He's the Lord, the righteous one, your servant and our king. We thank you for him who is all. We pray in his name this morning. Amen.